0: So this summer we've been talking about servant leadership, and uh, we've just been talking about leadership in general. And I would be remiss if I were to go through this whole series without talking about servant leadership. That's what I was trying to get out. Um, that that scene in there from Evan Almighty, where he says he wants to change the world. I think all of us at one point or other have had this sense that we want to change the world, or at least change our world. The question, of course, is how do we do that? <laughs> and I, I always go back when I think about this concept of, of being a world changer. I go back to a book I read way, way back when. as one of the early Max Lucado books called On the Anvil. It was all about how God shapes you into uh, someone that he can use. And it's this picture. It's a it's an illustration of a blacksmith shop and how it's on the anvil where the, the blacksmith is pounding you into what he wants you to be. And there's this Part of what I love about this book is the chapters are only like one to three pages long, which is perfect for my reading level. <laughs> and because you always have the, I, I like to have this sense of I read two chapters today, it's Made me feel really good about myself. But there's this prayer in here I never forgot, um, or this sort of like conversation that he says, you know, talks about having with God one day. And it says, scene is early one Sunday morning, sitting in church, and Max says, God, I want to do great things for you. And God says back, oh, you do? Oh, you bet. I want to reach millions. I want to fill the Rose Bowl, just like Billy Graham does. I want everybody all over the world to know about your saving power. I just dream of the day. Hey, that's great, Max. That's great. That's great. In fact, I can use you today after church. You want to get started? Yeah. What are we going to do? Like some radio, TV? What are we going to work on? Um, Is there an engagement way to speak over to Congress? Which I pause for a moment. I'm always like, why would you start there? Um, And God says, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind hey, you see that fellow sitting next to you? Yeah. He needs a ride home. What? Oh, and after you give him a ride home on your way back, uh, while you're at it, there's one of the older ladies who is sitting near you too. She's worried about getting a refrigerator removed. She'd be on your way this afternoon and, whoa, 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 God, what about the world? God says back, think about it, Max. Think about it. Did it ever make you just sort of pause and think about the fact that Jesus changed the world, but yet what did he do to change the world? He was an unknown guy in a remote corner of the Roman Empire serving a bunch of peasants almost, you know, off of the entire radar of everything. And it just goes to this picture if we want to change the world and we think that it's going to be somewhere, some big somewhere thing out there, but it begins just by simply serving the place where God has placed you. In looking at servant leadership, I, there's so many books out there on servant leadership. It seems like a who's who of, of pop leadership uh, authors have written on uh, servant leadership. Ken Blanchard, Brene Brown, Simon Sinek all have books on servant leadership. If you go into uh, Amazon and just type in servant leader, you will just see pages and pages and pages of servant leadership. And What's interesting is that at the heart of all of them, the, the originality of servant leadership came from Jesus. Uh, it came from the love we see modeled in the scriptures. However, I, I kind of thought to myself, it, it'd be kind of interesting to read some of these because you probably, I, I want to see how they pulled the biblical material out to apply it. And what I found is for so many of them, it had been so, so far removed from the biblical beginning or foundations that what you ended up having was sort of what the world does with everything with love. Uh, Sort of strip it down into some sort of utilitarian sort of commodity that you can extract out of it what you need, but leave leave out of it the most crucial essence of it. And what I mean by that is so much of what I saw on servant leadership is this is a great method to get the most out of your employees. I don't think when Jesus was serving uh, humanity and serving the disciples uh, around the table, I don't think as if his thought was, all right, if I'm going to extract the most out of these guys, what I got to do is. See, I don't think that was his mentality. The mentality was simply driven by a heart of love. And It was just a pure ethic of love, of you before me, and I, and I want to meet the need that you have. I want to uh, be here for you and to meet all of your needs. I, I want to supply you, and I want to resource you. That's, that's my goal. That's my objective. And, and that, that's, that piece of it is sort of still there when you read the books on servant leadership. They talk about how you need to be serving the frontline employees, but it's all under the motivation of so you can get the most out of them. And I guess that's what I almost found disturbing is it just seems like as if it, they've done with love what we always do with love. We, we strip out of it the core essence of it and leave us with some sort of self-serving utilitarian purpose, if that makes sense. And if you go back, though, through the Scriptures, you'll see that servant leadership didn't just begin with Jesus. Rather, Jesus was just the ultimate uh, epitome of it. If you go back through and you see every great leader in Scripture was a servant uh, Moses has talked about uh, he was a servant of the Lord. And if you look at what he does as a leader of God's people, he's continually serving and serving and serving. And and early on, Jethro comes to him and says, listen, what you're doing is not good, man. You're going to kill yourself trying to serve these people because he was there every single day mediating between all of their needs, uh, serving as a judge and an arbiter to, to all of these. He's just there serving the people. And then when they, they had needs for resources, they would come to Moses and he would serve their needs and their resources, even to the point where it led him into his own personal sins. Uh, he was just constantly serving and serving and serving. And God always calls us to be a servant leader. Uh, one of the chief blunders of leadership we read in the Old Testament is over in First Kings chapter 12. Uh, the setting for this is after Moses leads the people up to the edge of the promised land, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Then you have a period where there is no leadership in the nation of Israel, so they have a lot of issues and struggles. That's the book of Judges. After that, they call for a king, and God reluctantly gives them a king, and a guy named Saul, who was a really bad king and really... You know, had some struggles with his leadership. Then you have David, who's a phenomenal king, and then you have Solomon, who's a very wise and wealthy king. Solomon's son Rehoboam, though, is where you hit First Kings chapter twelve. And when uh, Rehoboam becomes ushered in to become king, uh, he goes to the advisors that advised Solomon, and they they tell him this and says, "If you want to have a long and successful reign as a king, here's what you need to do." This is First uh, Kings chapter twelve, verse seven. It says today, if you will be a servant of these people and serve them. Uh, and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So he says, listen, if you as a king will see yourself as your primary role is to serve the people that God has placed, has placed in your care, if you see that your role as a king is to serve the people that God has entrusted you, then they will always serve after you. Uh, however, Rehoboam doesn't follow this advice. Rather, he has some other people to tell him, like, oh, no, no, you're king, man you've earned this, you deserve this, they need to be serving you. You need to tell them what to do, you need to use your authority, and make sure everybody understands your authority, and if they usurp your authority, you need to deal with them harshly, and assert yourself uh, in this position. After all, you're the king, man. And he he, he says, I kind of like that idea, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And so he does that, and he splits the kingdom. So if you read in the Old Testament about the kingdom being split, the reason it's split is because a guy named Rehoboam decides he doesn't want to be a servant of the people, he wants everybody to do what he tells them to do. And you can't blame the guy, because for most of us, that's our picture of leadership. We sort of had the idea, well, if we're in charge, they're the ones who gets to call the shots. Everybody does things our way. Now, if there's ever been anybody who's come to earth who legitimately should be calling the shots and have everything do it his way, it was Jesus. Yet Jesus never looks at leadership as though that's what leadership is all about. For him, leadership is all about serving those that God has entrusted in your care. Leadership is all about serving those whom God has tr- entrusted into your care. Um, and so we read about uh, his leadership lessons that he talks about on this, and one of them comes out of Matthew chapter 20. Uh, and in Matthew chapter 20, uh, the mother of James and John comes, along to, comes over to Jesus with her sons James and John. Now if you know, Jesus uh, had three disciples that he was very close with that he sort of like pr- pulled in his to his inner circle, and it was Peter, James, and John. And so this is to James and John, uh, and their mama comes over and asks Jesus this question in Matthew chapter 20, verse, tw- uh, verse 20. So, so the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, comes to Jesus with her sons, and she kneels down before him and says, Can I ask a favor of you? And Jesus looks at her and is like, w- w- What do you want? And she says, Can you grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left in your kingdom? And he looks back he says, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, and Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And the two boys say, well, yeah, yeah, we can. And um, Jesus then goes on to say, well, those, those are you know, places that you know, uh, God's going to determine who's going to be in those places. Um, it's not really for me to decide right now. Now, what's interesting is the setting for this conversation, Okay. The setting for this conversation, if you just go back two or three verses, you'll read the setting and the context of this. It says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus knows he's on the way to Jerusalem so that he can be arrested um, and he can be ultimately crucified. So he's on his way to the cross. Um, and it says, on the way, he took the 12 aside and he says to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man is going to be delivered to the chief priest and the teacher of the law. They're going to condemn him to death They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles so he can be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. The next verse is, and then the mother of James and John pulls him aside. I mean, think about the context here. He's just said, I'm going to Jerusalem so they can mock me, flog me, and crucify me. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's great and all. However, who's going to be your VP and your secretary of state? I really think my boy should come again? What? I, I just told you I'm about to be crucified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really think that's actually going to play out like that, but we know you're going to, We know the real reason you're going to Jerusalem. The real reason you're going to Jerusalem is that you can become the next king, and we're really excited about that, and we're on board with that, and we just want to let you know I think we've really put in our time, and I think we're really in this place. Now, on the one hand, that would almost sound completely insensitive and out of touch, Right? On the other hand, it falls right in line with what, leader, or what uh, research tells us about givers and takers. A couple of years ago, I shared some of these stats. Uh, Adam Grant did this uh, study. He's an organizational psychologist. And uh, what he found about people in the workplace is that takers in the workplace inspire other people to be takers. And we all know takers, right? They're people who... Everything is there for them, and if there is a day off, they're going to be the first one to sign up to take it. If there is a freebie or a perk, they'll be the first one to take it. Uh, If there is an opportunity for somebody to take an easy assignment, they're going to take it. They're just going to take, 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 take. And he says, so takers inspire other people to be takers, and if you have a workplace culture where there's a lot of takers, you're going to see that you're breeding other takers. He says, however... You would think then that if you could have a few givers, or maybe if you as a leader could set an example as a giver, somebody who pours in other people, wouldn't that in turn then lead other people to become givers? No. As a matter of fact, it just feeds the takers more. And what happens is that (laughs) takers inspire other people to be takers, but givers seem to only encourage the takers to just take more. And doesn't that happen around the house too? Right. So Now, it's only appropriate that the moms in the room are going, oh, preach it, preach it. This is my life. This is my life. Because, you know, when you're sitting down to watch the ball game and, and you're like, oh, babe, it would be so good if I just had some nachos right now. And she's like, oh, no, no problem, sweetie. And she comes over and she gets you the nachos and she makes it for you. Does it make you then go, hey, honey, is there anything I can do for you? No. It makes you. It makes you think. Oh, uh, honey, where's my drink? (that) Right. ( niche) Givers don't inspire other givers, but takers inspire takers, and givers seem to only create more takers. As a matter of fact, what happens when you have givers in an office full of takers? The takers just give the givers more stuff to do, and it's kind of an interesting dynamic. So of course, while Jesus is sitting there and he's giving and he's giving and he's giving and he's giving and he's he's giving 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 giving. No wonder they look at him and they go, okay, that's great that you're going to be giving your whole life and doing all that other stuff. Cool. Um, we also want to know if, you, if we can take a few, t- few other things from you as well. We want to be able to take the, the highest seats of honor uh, when we have that opportunity. Now, it says, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant, right? And they, of course they were indignant because they thought to themselves, how is it after everything that Jesus Christ has done for us, you guys could come and just want something for yourself? That's not at all what Jesus was about. How could you possibly think that? Isn't that what they were thinking? No, they were indignant, why? Mm. Why didn't I think of that, right? I should have been the one to ask that. Dang it, they, they, they beat me to the punch. So they were in, and then we know that that's what they were thinking because Jesus calls them all together and he doesn't just say, hey, listen, listen, listen. I, don't get mad at them, don't get mad at them. If they were in the wrong, you guys were all in the right. No, no, he, he calls all of them together and he says, listen, you guys are missing the understanding, the concept of leadership. And he says this, he says, you guys know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them and their high officials exercise their authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to serve, or to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this plays out every week in the church. Every week across the country, this plays out in the church. I mean, you would think if there's ever been a group of people Uh, who are coming together, who are doing what? We're coming here to worship, to honor, to lift up Jesus Christ, who was the epitome of service, Uh, the one who who came to serve and and not to be served. Uh, We're coming here to the the one who who gave down his life as a a ransom and as a sacrifice. You would never, in the midst of that, ever have a consumer culture within the, the church community, would you? Well, of course we do. Because takers inspire takers, and givers only make takers want to take more and more and more and more, which is why, you know, it's, it's always hard. Somebody will come up to me and they're like, I'm just really excited to be here this morning. The last church I went to just really wasn't meeting my needs. <laughs> oh, can I jump to it and meet all of your needs too? I really hope I can. <laughs> I've never said that, but in the back of my mind, if you ever wanna know what a pastor really thinks and people (laughs) talk to him, that's sort of what's coming out. It's like, wow, we're really excited that you came here to consume everything that we have and then you'll chew us up and you'll spit us out and go on and tell other people bad things about us too. Um, Or they say, well, at my last church, I wasn't being fed. And then they kinda look at me like, will you feed me? (laughs) You know who needs to be fed? Uh, I'm not even gonna go there, it's something about babies. And it's like as if people are saying, you know, I, uh, when at my last church I was there and I just didn't, I didn't get that like tingle feeling that the spirit was there. And I, and I always picture Jimmy Johnson with his hair like all lathered up. You remember this commercial? It's for some sort of danger commercial and he's like, over here I get a tingle. It tells me it's doing something. Over here, no tingle. And I just picture like that's what people are thinking when they come into church. Like, you know, I, I just hope I find a tingle this morning. Best of luck with that, I don't know. Um, our first year as a church, I said something in, in the very beginning, back when we first began as a church, I said this, and, it, and it, somebody gasped. And I'll never forget the gasp that they, gasped, but they had. I haven't had it since. I think it's because most of you all get it by now. I just made this one statement. I says, the church isn't here for you. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> you people, man, I tell you, You people. If you couldn't hear at home, they were all patronizing me by giving me a gasp. (laughs) No, but the church isn't here for you. We're not here to serve your needs. Rather, you are the church, and you're here for the world. God created the church. It was his idea to design and create the church that it would be a physical embodiment, the representation of Jesus Christ. Even after he's gone, the Holy Spirit would so infuse you and fill you up that when you guys come together, people would know what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ because they're in your presence as a church. We are the church, and we're here for the world. Have you ever had this thought where, I want to change the world. I want to see God redeem humanity. Why won't God do something to change the world around us? And he's like, I am. I'm trying to. It's called the local church. Why won't you get involved? And yet you still come, and you look at it to meet all of your needs. Rather, I'm calling you to be a part of it to meet the needs of the community around you. That's what I desperately want you to do. Sorry, Okay. So it's no wonder when people come in and they have the same mentality as, as, as James and John's mama, what can you do for me? What can you give to me? What can you, what, what can you, you elevate me up to a status? Well, if I'm going to serve at church, I, I only want something where I'm going to be in charge of people. And he says, not so with you. It shouldn't be like that with you. And so he continues saying, listen, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die on a cross. Yeah, yeah, but what's in it for me? And they just don't get it. And so that's why when they then go to the Last Supper, so he's on his way to Jerusalem. And when they finally get to Jerusalem, the conversation is still, like you would think after that conversation, they'd be like, yeah, man, mm, we missed it. You know what their conversation is leading up to the Last Supper? Who's the greatest? Like, look, that's still the conversation. Like, they're still wondering. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't going to be James and John. He sure put you guys in your place. So who do you guys think is the greatest? And they're all still vying for it. As a matter of fact, at the Last Supper, when Jesus stands up, when Jesus, when Jesus says, hey, all of you are going to fall away on account of me, and Peter stands up and is like, not I. What do you think he's thinking in the back of his mind? Because I'm the greatest, so I wouldn't do something like that. So even Peter, he's got to put him in his place. It's just the mentality doesn't leave and they're still wondering about who is the greatest and he asks them hey what were you guys talking about on the road and it's like and they all got real quiet because they're still talking about this issue of who is the greatest and so that's why when they enter into the last supper there in John chapter 13 it says it was there just before the Passover festival Jesus knew his hour had come for him to leave this world and go back to the father in other words within 24 hours he's going to be giving his life on the cross this is having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning back to God. And so Jesus got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around them. Uh, after Jesus has talked about and talked about and talked about, what it means to love as a servant leader and displayed it again and again one last time. He shows them what it means to be a servant leader. And there's three things I just want to pull out of this. Is that three hallmarks of servant leadership. One is that it's motivated by love. I mentioned earlier at the very beginning, you know, one of the issues I, I, I kind of struggled with when I'd read through all of the secular books on servant leadership is they would sort of talk about love, but it was always in this utilitarian sense. Like if you really want to get the most out of somebody, you, you should show them this kind of love. Rather, for Jesus, if you notice here, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Most of us have this mentality, especially after we've been doing something for quite a long time, where we kind of have earned the opportunity to coast, right? Like, you know, let somebody else do it. I mean, after all, I've earned my spot, right? I've earned my time. I've put in my dues. I've done all that stuff. I've done all the menial stuff. I've done all the servant stuff. I've done all the low, low totem pole stuff. I've kind of done all of that stuff. Let somebody else do it. You know, I've earned some time off. Here's Jesus. If there's ever anybody who, who's earned the opportunity to just relax at this final dinner, isn't it him? I mean, think of all the people that he's healed. Think of all the meals that he's provided. Think of all of the times where he stayed up late nights caring for other people. Think of all the times where it says he could not freely move because of the acts of service and love that he performed for others. Think of all the times where he's given to other people in exchange for himself. If there's anybody who ever at some point has earned the opportunity just to take it easy for a night, it's Jesus. But yet it says he's motivated by love. He just loved them to the end, and he loved, and he loved, and he loved. And here's the hallmark about love, is you don't serve somebody unless you really love somebody. And if you really love somebody, you'll serve them. The true essence of love, the true essence of you before me, this isn't a self-serving love, this isn't I love the way you make me feel, or I love the way I, I, I am when I'm with you. This is a I truly love you. When you truly love somebody, you will serve them. You just do. You look for, for the needs that they have and you see need that they have and you just, you just want to meet it. And so it says he's, he's loved them from the beginning and he loves them there through to the very end. Uh, second thing about uh, servant leadership and, and a hallmark of servant leadership is it takes somebody who is secure enough in who they are that they have the ability to be humble. Humility results out of being secure in who you are. Now, if you're still looking for other people to think highly of you, you're never going to take a position of serving. If you want everybody to think of you as being the greatest in the room or the, the top dog in the room, you're not going to be the one taking out the trash. You're just not going to do it. Why? Because who takes out the trash? Not, not the leader, not the boss. You know, not the one everybody's kind of esteeming and looking up to. Uh, and so what it says here, it says, Jesus knew the Father put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. I know who I am, I know where I am, and I know where I'm going. And so I'm free to serve, because I know who I am, and and I know where I'm going. Now, every one of you in this room should be able to say the same thing about yourselves if you understand who you are in Christ. That you know who you are, you're a child of God, you know why you're here, you're here. You were created by God to be on this earth for a short time, to have a loving relationship with Him that will last for all eternity, to share that, to grow that, uh, and to expand in that loving relationship with Him. And ultimately, where are you going? To spend forever with Him. This is not your final home, this is not your ultimate destiny. So, of course, your role while you're here is to serve. Because you know, this isn't, this isn't the end. This isn't the ultimate pinnacle of, of who you are. Your reputation here isn't the ultimate of it. What people here think of you, it isn't the ultimate matter. And so, Jesus could act like a slave because he knew he was the king of kings. And he could take on the role of a slave because he knew who he was. Now, I remember years ago, this was sort of hard for me because having grown up a Florida State fan, having gone to Florida State, Uh, when i got to seminary uh danny werfel who was the heisman trophy winner for university of florida got drafted by the saints and it just so happened that he was dating a girl who went to my school and so we end up with hanging out end up hanging out with danny werfel quite a bit that year which was sort of odd because i'd be sitting in the room with him like i didn't like you as like a person on tv but you're a really nice guy (laughs) and i remember he was talking about what it's like to be a rookie uh, in the nfl and this is come. Out, it comes out every once in a while in some of the news stories. When you're a rookie in the NFL, you're basically made to be the servant or slave of everybody else on the team. Um, all the veterans make you carry their pads. Uh, when they sit down to eat, you're the last one to sit down to eat. If somebody wants some ketchup, you've got to go get it. Um, and they'll just say, hey, rook. And they'll just you know, tell you to go do whatever. And it's very dismissive. And in talking about this, I remember him saying, he says, you know, everything I'm being made and forced to do as a rookie is everything that, as a Christian on the team, I would want to do, like like you're, you're basically forced to be a servant. And he's like, and as a Christian, that's really what I want to. That's the kind of person I want to be. It's like even when as a veteran, I would still want to you know serve my teammates in the same way. He says, but I will tell you what's been the hardest of all of this. It's not serving other people that's hard. It's when I'm being treated like a servant. He says that's the real pride hit, and that's what I found it within my spirit, sort of rebelling against. Is when other people treat you like a servant, um, or call you, or refer to you, or demean you like one. Now I mentioned earlier, Jesus is about to go get mocked and flogged and crucified. When you ever play that, like that remember Sesame Street game, like which one of these is not like the other? Which one of those do you think is probably the least of any of them? Like, crucified is probably the worst, right? Right? Flogged is really bad too. That's where you get literally beaten within an inch of your life. But the mocking, why even include it? Like when I mean, you think about the other two, why even include that? Among the reasons why people quit serving or don't serve, it has to do with how people are being treated when they serve. In other words, I don't mind taking out the trash, but the second you call me the trash man, I don't wanna take out the trash anymore. You with me on this? When Jesus is going to the cross, he's literally being mocked by the very people he's dying for. Later on, he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's literally dying for the very sins of the people who are mocking him and making fun of him and, and teasing him. The hardest part of serving is not the serving, it's being treated like a servant. Right about the time, it says he's being spit on as he's doing it. See, for me, it's like right about the time somebody spits on me when I'm trying to die for your sins, that's about the time where I go, all right, forget this, man. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You with me on this? The hardest part of being a servant leader is being treated like a servant, I think. You see, because I will gladly do the task, but don't demean me while I'm doing it. You with me on this? But the heart of a servant leader, the heart of a true servant is, I'm secure enough in who I am that even if you treat me like a servant or demean me along the way, it doesn't change who I am and doesn't change what I've decided to do for you. I'm just gonna still do it. So you can call me boy or trash man or whatever it is, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. I know where my destiny is and I'm still going to serve. And then lastly, so it's, it's motivated by love. It's secure in a sense of identity. that allows me to be humble enough to do it. And then lastly, is it sees a need and just takes the initiative. Um, now, walking in the room, so this is a cultural thing for them. So like for instance, if somebody were to come over to your house uh, in the dead of winter, uh, you might meet them at the door and what might you offer to do? take their coat and hang it up for them, right? Small thing. It's just something we would do. It's just just sort of almost kind of expected But when somebody comes over your house in the winter, you take their coat. In their day and time, the, the sort of cultural appropriate thing is when somebody came in off a dusty road wearing sandals, you would offer to have their feet washed. Now, oftentimes it would be the role of a, you know, the house slave or a servant would do this kind of task. Well, because they're meeting in a secret location, because somebody's out to get Jesus, I wonder who it could be, um, There's nobody there to do that. What is the mentality of the disciples when they're walking in the room? Who's the greatest? So they're probably all jockeying for position at the table, kind of like you do when you, remember you show up like at a wedding reception or something like that, and you're trying to figure out like, oh, where did they put me, right? (laughs) You know, how close am I to the head table sort of thing. And some of you all switch your names around. I know you do. (laughs) And I don't know if they're all worried about that or wondering about that. But everybody sees that there's nobody at the door to do it but nobody's going to humble themselves to be the one to go over and do it. Because if you do that, it's sort of like you're admitting you're the least amongst everybody in the room, right? When everybody's worried about who's the greatest, nobody's going to do the thing that is the least. And so Jesus has this sense where he looks around. You ever had that thought, somebody ought to do something about that, right? When you have the thought, somebody ought to do something about that, that's the leadership bias that God has placed in your heart. That, that, that is the heart of a leader is to see something, you see a need. Somebody really ought to do something about that. Now, the difference between having a leadership bias and a servant leadership heart is the servant leader looks around and goes, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I am. And you just go do it. And that's why you were an invited guest to the party and the trash is piling up. What do you do? You just take out the trash. You're not the trash guy, but you just take out the trash. There's a mess on the floor. You weren't, you weren't the maid service, but what do you do? You just, you clean it up. There's a crying baby. I look for the mama. <laughs> oh wait, I'm sorry, what was I supposed to do? Um, yeah. <laughs> I struggle with that one. I've only let a few of your kids spit up on me and you know who you are. about two of you in this room, that's it. (laughs) I struggle with that one. Um, But the heart of a servant leader is you just see the need and you you meet the need. And there's no job beneath you. There's no sense of, I didn't come here to do that. That's not my job description. That's not what I'm here to do. There's just a sense of, why'd you do it? Because it needed to be done? Think about this. What was the very first miracle that Jesus performed? Water into wine, right? And the context or the setting for that is um, they're at this party. And, and there's kind of this embarrassing moment where they've run out of wine and the person who's hosting the party is gonna be embarrassed of the fact that the wine's run out. They didn't you know, expect as you know, many guests and everything like that. And so Jesus steps in and he has the ability uh, because of his miraculous powers to come in and sort of save the day and rescue the party host from embarrassment by doing something that only he can do. And it's one of those moments where you're like, wow, if I could turn water into wine, I'd pull that kind of stuff off too. There's a reason God hasn't given you that ability. (laughs) But what was it that he did, honestly? He saved the party host from embarrassment by stepping in and doing something. You have that opportunity as a servant leader every time you go to somebody's house, every time you're in any opportunity or any situation. Because usually what's been overlooked that, that creates the embarrassment is the thing that's been spilled or the garbage, or something like that. And it takes the heart of a servant to say, I'll step in and do it. Now, last thing I'll say about this is after Jesus uh, does all this stuff and washes their feet, says when he finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on and returned back to his place uh, at the table. And he says, do you guys understand what I've done for you now? It's kind of like, you know, I, you clearly didn't get it for the past three years, my serving. Do, do, do you get it now? And so he just lays it out. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's what I am. But now that I, your teacher and your Lord, has washed your feet, so you also should be washing one another's feet. I've set this as an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you no servant is greater than his master nor the messenger greater than one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Remember back that study that Adam Grant told, I told you about did where the, uh, the um, behavioral psychologist, you know, and he says takers, inspire the people to takers. And uh, givers inspire other people to just seem to take more. And in there he says, you know, he, he wanted to know how is it that a giver, or sorry, how is it that a giver can inspire a taker to become a giver? How is it that a taker will move from being a taker to becoming a giver? And he said there's only one thing he's found. When the giver, after having given, invites the taker to also give. In other words, it's like this. You ever had that moment like maybe it's like you've been eating on paper plates and you're like taking people's plates up because you just have this mindset like you look around, everybody's got trash at their table and so you just decide, you know, hey, I'm gonna get up and put mine away. I might as well take everybody to the table. So you take a whole bunch of them and you realize there's more trash than you can take. If you turn to somebody who just gave you their plate and you say, "Hey, hey, could you help me with this? Nine out of 10 times, that person will get up and they will serve also. When a giver invites a taker to also be a giver, nine out of 10 times, the taker will become a giver. So all those times where you're frustrated, nobody else will chip in and help, I look back to you first of all and say, invite them to help. As your pastor, I'm not just gonna rail on the consumer culture, but I'm gonna look to you and say, give, give. Since you've walked into this campus this morning, other people have been here giving to you and giving to you and giving to you. People got here long before you to serve in the parking lot, to serve out on our first impressions, to make coffee before you walked in, to have everything ready for you. Uh, They've prepared lessons for your children, so no matter how long I preach, uh, they'll continue to care for your kids. <laughs> Trust me, I hear about it when I go over. Wow, you really went over? I'm like, yeah, I had a lot to share. They're like, no, you really went over, and I had to fill time. Um... But they do that, they're just here serving you and serving you and serving you. And this isn't some sort of special giving push, it's just simply me just reading the scriptures to you and is asking you, will you give also? Will you be a part of what God is doing to redeem humanity by giving and serving in the place where he has created for other people to come and to hear the life-changing message about Jesus Christ? Will you become a giver? Will you serve? Would you like me to close our time in prayer? Father, I think it's in the heart of each and every one of us to want to do great things for you, to be a part of changing the world, and yet we're sitting right here in the midst of the one organization that you've created specifically designed to change the world. So, Father, forgive us for having the mentality of wondering what is it that can be done for us. Rather, Father, help us look around and see what is it that I can be doing to serve. Father you served us from the time that you stepped foot on this earth and you gave and you gave you've inspired countless others to follow after you and to serve and to serve and Father don't allow me to take that for granted let me step into the opportunities that are before me and just serve both formally and informally, that there'd never be a job beneath me. I thank you, Father, that very, very busy people with very, very busy lives and very busy schedules are serving each and every one of us right now by caring for our children, by investing into our youth, by working throughout the week simply so that we can have this time here alone with you. Father, may we serve like Jesus Christ has served us, and in Jesus' name, amen.